0: You wanted the best. You've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, in the world. The
1: Chris Voss Show. The preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready. Get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the com. the Chris Voss Show. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to see the video version of this on youtube.com. That's Chris Voss at youtube.com. You can hit the bell notification button. You can see all the wonderful things we talk about and the brilliant authors that we have on the show. For some reason, we always have the most brilliant authors on the Chris Voss show. Just amazing. I get, I get that all the time. I hear people say that. (laughs) It's like somebody's line of PR. They, I know Uh, we all know. Uh, Anyway, we always have the best authors though. We really do. Seriously. There's been scientific studies on this. I think something like that. Uh, But, uh, go to the CBPN, refer your friends, neighbors, relatives, and friends to the show so they can check it out. You can also see us on our newest syndication. We have a billion syndications, but you can see us on Amazon Music. So there you go. That's a fresh new place you can get your podcast. And, of course, there's only one you want to listen to. Uh, also... Uh, Go to Goodreads.com and look for Chris Voss under there. We have a a new The Chris Voss Show group on Goodreads. We're doing a little book club where we're going to be giving away books and doing some fun things, talking about the authors and all that good stuff. So follow us over there. Today, the most excellent author that we have on today is Ian Baruma. He is the author of The Church Hill Complex. You may have heard him, Churchill I'm one of my favorite guys in history. The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. Uh, Ian teaches at Bard College. Uh, He's written a ton, uh, just a ton of books. A Tokyo Romance, Their Promised Land, Year Zero, The China Lover, Murder in Amsterdam, Occidentalism, God Dusk, Behind the Mask, The Wages of Guilt. Bad Elements, and Taming the Gods. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you. I was going to, I was, my comedic brain actually was going to just start making up more titles and just keep going for another five <laughs> minutes, but that's a lot of books there. Congratulations. Thank you. And congratulations on your new book. Uh, give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs.
0: Well, I, Barnes & Noble is one place to look. Uh, Amazon.com. Um and all your local bookstores i hope
1: mm-hmm. yeah well they're still around so we got to keep them in business right that's right and then people could find you on uh, instagram and the uh, facebook right
0: yes absolutely
1: and where's a good place to look for them there ian.bruma i think, dot Ian Bruma, I think. there you go get those plugs in uh so uh Ian, you've written a ton of books what motivated you want to write this book
0: well, I'll tell you, it's because I, I, grew, I, I was born six years after the war, but in a country that had been occupied by Nazi Germany, the, the, the Netherlands. Um, and so to us, the people who are liberators, were the Americans, the Canadians, the British, and so on, and their reputation was sky high. And when you thought of the... Anglo Saxon world, as the French call it, you thought of openness and liberalism and democracy and internationalism, etc. etc. And we're now living in an age that both the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Britain seem to have turned their backs on a lot of what Winston Churchill and FDR fought for. So I wanted to write a book about the relationship between Britain and America since or starting in the war to defeat the the Axis powers, but then what happened? Why are we in this mess?
1: Why are we in this era of populism and everything else? So uh, give us an overview of the book, what it's about, what entails
0: inside of it. Well, the the book is really, the, the reason it's called the Churchill Complex is that the shadow of Churchill really goes a very long way after the war. And by that I mean that um, he became, as a war hero, he he created his own myth as well as many others. And one of the great myths of World War II is that Churchill was the great hero of 1940, which he was. was, You needed a bloody-minded romantic like Churchill to raise the morale of Britain and so on. And the great villain was Prime Minister Chamberlain, who appeased Nazi Germany in 1938 in Munich. And the the myth is that Chamberlain was a villain and Churchill was a hero. And the problem with myths is that they get used every which way. And one one way this was used is that too many presidents of the United States wanted to be Churchill and were terrified of being Chamberlain. And so every time there was uh, a foreign crisis and they had to decide whether to intervene with force or not, Munich and Chamberlain came back as a kind of ghost to haunt them. And Churchill, the great war hero, loomed. And they all wanted to be Churchill, which led to a lot of very foolish wars, very destructive wars, with Britain as the sort of junior partner, clinging to the United States as though they wanted 1945 to last forever. And I think Trump and Brexit, in some ways, are are a sort of backlash um, against that. Trump yeah. had gone back to the sort of America First of the 1930s that Roosevelt fought against.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me the irony of of how Trump loves Churchill. I believe there's a bust he has of him in the Oval Office, and you're and he likes to reference him every now and then. He he claimed during the pandemic that that he handled the pandemic like Churchill handled the bombing of England, and which is you know anybody who's ever studied Churchill is like fantastic It's it's fantasy, and Churchill cried. He he actually toured the bombed out things. Um, so, uh, where do you start in the book? Because you go kind of across the span, I, start, I believe, going back. Yeah,
0: I stop more or less in 1941, when the United States was not yet in the war. Churchill uh, and, and Britain were fighting with their backs to the wall desperately needed the Americans to to, to get into the war. And they met in the Bay in Newfoundland, Churchill and Roosevelt, on a battleship and drew up the Atlantic Charter, which was really a kind of blueprint for the ideal post-war order, which was all about internationalism, international cooperation, freedom, independence, and so on. Now Churchill had somewhat different views on the right of people to be independent than than, uh, Roosevelt. Uh, Churchill certainly did not want the Indians and other colonial subjects to be independent, and Roosevelt was not a friend of the British Empire. Nonetheless, the, that blueprint was there. And much of the post war order in the West, at least, and in the Far East, uh, followed these uh, ideals. And again, you know, Trump may like Churchill as a sort of heroic figure. Um, and he sometimes he sort of puts on a kind of scowl that reminds you of Churchill that may g- give him a sort of gravitas or something. But he's really very much against everything Churchill was in favour of.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's clearly a nationalist, a populist, and. I care about my country only. It's it, I don't know. I don't know where he also claims to be like Abraham Lincoln, and you know he's nothing like
0: yeah, him. He couldn't be less like him. I mean, yeah. where, the, the people, many people, don't realize anymore that "America First was the slogan of the isolationists in the '30s, and uh, Charles Lindbergh and others who were often more sympathetic to Nazi Germany than they were to to the British or to FDR.
1: Yeah, in fact, they were meeting with the He was meeting with the Nazis and promoting with them. They gave, I think, they gave him or Henry Ford or both of them a giant award. Well,
0: I both of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, oh my God. Yeah, the uh, uh, Donald Trump is like Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. Like, I look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> so, look at that face. So there you go. So you talk about this um, and the parallels in the book. Uh, do you talk about other presidents in between and how that myth? Uh, they tried to carry that myth as well
0: yes or not i mean some mm-hmm. reacted against it some uh, so it, it, it's really how history continues to affect the present and uh, in this case the u.s and the uh, u.s and, and, and britain and it changed of course from president to president and prime minister to prime minister some of them got, got along some of them didn't um, but whenever there was a war uh, not always, but very often when there was a war, the two sides found one another in this sort of shared myth of glory left over from the war. And the last uh, example of this being, of course, the Iraq War, mm-hmm. when Tony Blair uh, very much saw himself in the tradition of Churchill and, and the two Anglo-Saxon nations fighting side by side against tyranny and so on and so forth.
1: Boy, that turned out bad, didn't it?
0: That was not a success.
1: I don't think that's been either Bush's or, or Tony Blair's. I don't think Tony Blair's really ever recovered from that, has no, he? No,
0: I think that's yeah. his lasting legacy, yeah. which is, is sad, uh, even though he, he himself was largely responsible. But he, he was not a bad prime minister. He was a domestically a very good prime minister, but a bit like Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a great president domestically yeah. and then screwed it all up with Vietnam.
1: Yeah, he would have had a very different legacy if it hadn't been for if he'd figured out how to close up Vietnam. Um, and it was interesting how much, uh, you know, he kind of did that to himself. He was lying to himself. He kept asking for intelligence reports that would show that they were winning. And, uh, the CIA, the CIA was like, we're not winning. And this, there's no winning of this war. Um, but he wouldn't listen. But yeah, this is interesting. Now I notice on the cover you have, uh, wow. I had a moment of, of harebrained here, but you yeah, have Prime Minister Johnson.
0: Boris Johnson.
1: Boris Johnson, yeah. I don't know why I couldn't remember his name. Maybe it's because I don't want to. But it's interesting you have Trump and Brexit. You don't say Trump and Johnson. Is there a reason for that?
0: <laughs> well, there are two Johnsons. Uh, oh, is
1: that why? Okay.
0: And, uh, and, and the, the point really... Uh, Trump represents the Trump era, Boris Johnson happens to be the Prime minister who was also very instrumental in bringing brexit about, but Brexit is the big thing, not really mm-hmm. Johnson himself
1: okay, so uh, so you talk about uh, the brexit issue, the trump issue, the populism. Um, do you get into any of the election and and why those uh, both 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 the brexit uh vote and the trump vote were horribly misled by misinformation do you get into any of that detail
0: i get into into that not in great detail I, it's mm-hmm. it, I, it's more a portrait of the two leaders and why they managed to ride the wave that they did and and then the wave of course is discussed in uh, in the course of of the book
1: mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see how this this whole thing plays out our our final thing is in November, I remember when Johnson got uh, COVID after he'd been running around going, COVID's no big deal. Yeah, it's fine. I'm visiting hospitals, new stuff. And and I, I think it's actually crippled his health from what I understand or what I hear through the through the small news mills. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think he almost died. I think he spent he one day.
0: He did almost die, I think, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, he spent one day. He claimed he was never on a ventilator, but it was starting to get weird there. Mm-hmm. where we're like, uh, yeah, you're in the ICU. I think uh, that's not going good. But uh, so uh, what were some of the things that surprised you when you wrote the book? What were some of the things that you you didn't know about or the readers will be surprised about when they read the book?
0: Well, not, not one huge revelation, but um, I hadn't realized the extent to which both Churchill and Munich, 1938, kept on being such a, a big deal in, 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 in foreign policy and uh, in Munich keeps being mentioned by um, uh, presidents and prime ministers really all the way through and the, the Suez crisis in 1956, the, the, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, it keeps coming back and it shows really how when people say we have to learn from history you have to, if you don't know history you repeat the same mistakes Sometimes you can make mistakes by by uh, thinking about history too much.
1: Or thinking you're abiding by it. Uh, what's the old line that I always say? The one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. Which yes, is a great I
0: that's probably true. Cyclical
1: irony. That's a quote from me, actually. Um, the, uh, so, so tell us about the Munich experience uh, and, and give people some more detail on, on what happened in Munich, well, in if you would. In um,
0: 1938, when Hitler was already being very belligerent, um, Chamberlain um, went to uh, Munich and um, essentially made a deal with Hitler, that Hitler promised that he would, he would take a big chunk out of Czechoslovakia, which was the Sudetenland where a lot of German speakers lived, and in exchange for which he promised that he wouldn't take any more. And, and, and Chamberlain could go back to Britain with a piece of paper saying, peace for our time, and so on and so forth. Now, Churchill immediately denounced it as a, a, a bitter defeat. But Chamberlain didn't have all that many cards to play with. The British militarily were not really prepared to fight a war. I'm not sure that public opinion was quite behind it yet. So he was really playing for time. But he Mm. went down uh, in history as the arch appeaser, the coward, and so on. And, And Churchill, who kept saying you cannot compromise with Hitler, turned out to be right. But of course, those moments are not... rather rare in history what you want in in mostly from your leaders is that is that they're flexible that they can compromise they can make deals they can negotiate their way out of trouble and so on may 1940 was one moment when there was no way you could negotiate your way out of trouble with hitler and Mm -hmm. that's why churchill has gone down as this great hero but it's not may 1940 very often
1: that's interesting. That was a, that was a little turning point. I, I, I've always admired Churchill, and I remember, you know, he was screaming about how why are we selling them engines and parts, and you know, they they totally just and and Merrick was doing the same. We were just saddling right up to Hitler, um, and uh, and then you know they kind of ran him off for a while as a crazy man, and then all of a sudden he was right. You know, he'd been right all along. And uh, it's interesting to me, though, uh, and maybe you speak to this in the book, you know, what Churchill did and the reason he won and, and you know, what, what his real, to me, what his real legacy is, was a defensive legacy. He, I mean, England was attacked, um, was under attack, was under threat of being overrun. Uh, and he rose up the populace. It's interesting to me that they would try and use that, like in the example of Tony Blair and Bush, where we go out and attack a country. We, we went out and attacked uh, Iraq. I mean, Afghanistan, clearly the, the Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, I believe it was, who had attacked us at nine eleven. But then we just decided to go attack a country for the first time. That I think this never, I don't know if it's the first time, but the first time this never really attacked us. And... Uh, it, but to use the Churchill sort of myth as an attack strategy instead of defense, I don't know if that plays into what you talk about in the book.
0: Well, you could argue that, um, I mean, in the Korean War, the Korean, the North Koreans didn't attack the United States either. They attacked South, no. South Korea. In, mm. in uh, the Vietnam War, it was also really a, a civil war between the communists, North and the and the South. But, um, yes, you're right. Uh, I mean... the, the Again, Chamberlain keeps being mentioned, but of course, uh, foreign uh, dictators uh, like Saddam Hussein keep on being compared to Hitler too. And mm. just as there are not that many moments uh, that uh, are, are really comparable to May 1940 when Britain faced Nazi Germany, there are not that many dictators or, I mean, no one really who's quite like Hitler. I mean, Hitler no. was a highly unusual figure as as was his regime that's not to say that other dictators like Saddam Hussein are not very nasty yeah dictators are almost invariably nasty but they don't necessarily threaten the world whereas Hitler did
1: yeah and and Hitler was running with it I mean certainly by giving them parts of Czechoslovakia that was like feeding the dragon or feeding an alligator you're just like he's gonna want
0: more and Churchill saw that 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 mm-hmm. Hitler was not a man you could reason with. Uh, Chamberlain probably knew that too, but d- d- sort of hoped that somehow he'd get away with it.
1: Mm-hmm. More of a politician than maybe a lawyer.
0: Yes, term. Okay. absolutely more of a politician, which is exactly the sort of person you need in normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. You don't need war heroes to to lead you in peacetime.
1: What sort of fallacies do you see with Donald Trump and what in your book?
0: well i don't uh, donald trump really comes right at the end and mm-hmm. um, uh, d- d- i describe John, donald trump as i see him which is uh, a sort of carnival huckster <laughs> um i think i see donald trump in the tradition of of uh, one of my favorite american movies of all time with burt lancaster and elma gantry oh uh, you know the the, uh, the, the roguish evangelical pre- preacher who keeps sinning and then making money and so on, um, uh, he's a very American figure. And you have right-wing populism everywhere now, uh, in Europe as well as the United States, but each country has its own history and its own traditions. And so uh, different types get thrown up in, in, uh, in our time. And Trump, I think, is a very American version of this. Mm -hmm. What was the name of that movie again? I'm I'm going
1: to watch it. Elmer Granty? Gantry. Gantry, there it is. Based on a
0: novel by Sinclair Lewis.
1: I'm going to have to watch that. That's one of the movies that I I may have seen it. But uh, all right, I got it pulled up there. I'm going to check that thing out. Um, you know what's funny is if you've been—I'm sure you've been watching the news—you can't really miss this story. But uh, we we just recently got to see some of that Barnum and Bailey circus, where we found out his taxes are and mm-hmm. his income and stability is incredibly fraudulent. <laughs> um, so there, there, there we go with the huckster the reference. That's that you right.
0: He's a promoter and a, huck, and a showbiz man. I mean, and and you find that tradition in in tension in in in. in the history of American uh, evangelical religion, you find it in showbiz in Hollywood and, and, mm-hmm. and in politics.
1: Yeah. I, I was a big fan of his in 1986 when his book came out, I was like 20 years old, just going into business. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, this is my business. God. I, I, read a lot of fortune Forbes, you know, back when Forbes was this thick thing that when his uh, father, or grandfather ran it. Uh, and, and so I, there was a lot of different businessmen that I admired, but you know, he he came on the scene with the art of the deal, and then by 1989 or 1990s, uh, he put out a book that has now been actually pulled from print to hide his failures, but it was a book that talked about his bankruptcies and and how he survived the 90s, um, and it just became it just started becoming real apparent. You know, I followed I followed the three to four bankruptcies they filed with the uh, the the Trump. And trust with the healthy Atlantic City properties, and finally they threw the family out because they got tired of it. Um, I'd followed for years and just it became real apparent the dude was a huckster and uh, had gotten most of his money from his parents but uh, the fact that a whole electorate would fall for it, or that people you know most people in New York or people that are educated or people live in big cities, you know they were used to seeing guys like that every day on the street but uh, it was interesting, but it is interesting how he tries to um put on the Churchill, this Churchill mantle mm. or frame, if you will, and you're just like, oh, my God, like, no, he did that during the pandemic. And we were all just like, yeah, do you even know what Churchill did during the war?
0: <laughs> well, I believe he he didn't realize quite what what Pearl Harbor was all about. When he, he yeah, that's Hawaii. true. That's but true. Then, like, historical knowledge is not his strong uh, point.
1: I mean, it's one of the most seminal, it's like not knowing what 9-11 was. Yeah. If you don't know what Pearl Harbor was and what brought us into the war, I mean, if it hadn't been for Pearl Harbor, there's some historians that think that we might have kept settling up to uh, um, Hitler through, you know, uh, the famous aviator and, and uh, Henry Ford and, um Because we were fine with it, and we're just kind of like, well, let them roll on their thing. In fact, wasn't FDR, for the large part, weren't we kind of in a nationalist sort of attitude, a populist attitude back then? We're like, after World War I, we're not getting any more wars. Fuck everyone. Let them do their own thing. And he had to convince the American populace to...
0: I think more than 50% felt that way. And uh, uh, why get involved in another European war? And uh, on the right, you had... People who said, well, you know, this is the war for fighting for the British Empire, for Jewish interests and so on. and But a lot of people were just tired of uh, spending American blood on on foreign wars. And so it, it, it took Pearl Harbor, really,
1: yeah. to,
0: uh, for, for America to, to finally get into the war.
1: And I remember, uh, in fact, I think during that time is when we turned back a whole shipload of uh, Jewish people come escaping Hitler. And sadly, we turned them back, and I believe a lot of them ended up dying in, in the chambers and gas Well,
0: chambers yeah, probably... the United States was not the only country that closed its borders. I mean, wow. by the end of the 30s, it was very difficult to get in anywhere. Wow. Even, you know, places like Cuba or, or, or Mexico, which mm-hmm. did take quite a few people. But, uh, yeah, it was, borders closed very quickly, as we see in our own time. Yeah, when desperate people try to get into countries, and uh, you know, people
1: don't want them. Hell, we can't even get out of our country. (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, I wish more Trump voters owned passports because uh, and traveled because I don't think they realize. I mean, we're we're literally living in a prison. Uh, Like I don't know, man. After November third, I might want to make a run to Canada, and uh, I don't think I can. So. So there's that, but yeah, it, it is interesting. I remember. F, didn't I think FDR had to make a major speech to try and convince people, or he made a series of speeches to try and convince people that we need to do the war. But yeah, definitely, um, definitely, the uh, Pearl Harbor brought us into it, and it was naive for us not to realize that it was just a matter of time until we didn't get attacked.
0: Yes, and uh, he did make several speeches, um, trying to convince people that this was not something the united states could uh keep away from uh, because it was going to if uh, europe were to be dominated by nazi germany it would uh, be very bad for the united states as well um he did say that and various in various ways of course he did uh, help britain even then with the so-called lend lease program when britain mm-hmm. got sort of cast off uh, ships and so on from the, the US Navy, but he struck a hard bargain. Uh, Britain had to pay for it uh, very, very dearly mm. um, uh, in gold and, and money and, and territory and so on. Nonetheless, he did do something to help Britain before um, Pearl Harbor. But the great one of the great mysteries is why Hitler, um, after japan attacked pearl harbor um declared war in the united states because mm-hmm. hitler was already bogged down in a terrible war in, in the so- in the soviet union um on the eastern front why he thought that it was a smart thing to do to then declare war on the u.s is one of the great mysteries
1: well i mean he was kind of a meth head speed freak which is also a trump thing he's an anerald junkie uh and uh uh according to Noel Castor and a few different people from the set of <laughs> of uh, what you may call whatchamacallit, his show, uh The Apprentice. Um so yeah, it, I mean that was that was one of Hit Hitler's great um greatness strategies or uh things that really screwed him up was declaring war on everyone and then he got pulled too far in every which way. And of course, bringing us into war. I believe we had one historian on from historian on from uh, from the Japanese war and what they were trying to do and and evidently the the concept was is is they thought they would totally cut our head off by taking out all the ships in Pearl Harbor if they could get a, if they get Pearl Harbor just wiped off the map, then we wouldn't have anything uh, to do with, and then we would settle some sort of peace agreement with them and that was the idea and they knew once they poked the bear
0: which historian was that
1: i believe it was a, it was a guy who wrote operation vengeance was the book we had on
0: yeah, I think what the Japanese were were betting on is not that they could wipe out the entire U.S. Navy, but they thought if they gave a very sh- sharp shock to the Americans, yeah. uh, America being in, in the eyes of Japanese militarists, a sort of decadent democracy, um, the Americans wouldn't have the stomach to fight. So they would co- then come back to negotiate with Japan on terms that were favourable to Japan, I think that's what that was the gamble. That was the discussion, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and wiser heads in Japan re- realised perfectly well that if that gamble failed, that they would certainly, in the end, lose the war.
1: Yeah, and they did.
0: <laughs> and they did
1: yeah. But in an extraordinary way, and one that Salanza says, damn, from a nuclear aspect. Um and you know now we they you know we built the bomb and everything else and and all that good stuff. So, uh, what other what other things have we covered in your book? Uh, what are the things should we be talking about?
0: Well, it, it, it every chapter is about a president and, and a prime minister and mm-hmm. so, and the time that they lived uh, lived lived in. Um, mm-hmm. so we have the disaster of, um, again. World War II affecting uh, a decision made by uh, a politician in the 50s when Anthony Eden, who finally became prime minister when Churchill, old and almost senile, finally had to give up, who thought that um, uh, General Nasser, the uh, Egyptian strongman at the time, was really a kind of fascist dictator who had to be stopped uh, in the way that you know um, Hitler should have been stopped in 1938 and made uh, a deal with the French and the, and the Israelis to um, go to war with Egypt. And Eisenhower, um, at the, who was president at the time, thought this was ridiculous and stopped the British in the end and the French and said, if you don't stop this war right away, we'll... Um, will destroy the pound sterling. And wow. um, that's the moment that the British realized that their they, as a world power, uh, the end had come. Wow. Uh, up until then, you know, the, Britain had st- still had a l- lot of its empire and so on. It was a global force, but they realized in Suez in 56, when the Americans could stop them overnight, that it was sort of all over. Um, and, Well, then, with the other wars in Korea, uh, the Americans were desperate for the British to come in, and they did to some extent. And in Vietnam, uh, LBJ desperately wanted the British to send troops so that the Americans wouldn't be fighting it alone with the South Vietnamese. And the then Prime Minister, uh, Harold Wilson, was a Labour Party leader. In other words, he was a socialist. And he knew that sending British troops would completely destroy his credibility with the left wing of his party. He couldn't do that. Um, The party was divided in the same way, really, that the Democrats are today, that it had a strong left wing, and then it had a sort of more moderate establishment. And um, so so, so Wilson was stuck between having to keep America happy so that Britain could stay within that sort of what they've always called the special relationship with the U.S., keep lbj happy but without sending troops and that meant that he in in public supported the war supported lbj whatever he may have thought but to his credit um, he never did send troops um, and then in later wars usually the british were um did fight on the side on the american side in, in various conflicts Again, not all of them. I think when Margaret Thatcher decided to, to do a, a Churchill and fight over the Falklands with Argentina, which Ronald Reagan, who was then president, called, this, what are they doing fighting over this little icy rock? <laughs> which is more or less what it is. Uh, the Americans thought it was pretty ridiculous. Many um, members of the Reagan administration were rather close to the Argentinian military junta which they saw as a sort of a bastion against communism. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, they did help the British, and there were some very pro-British members of the administration, particularly Caspar uh, Weinberger. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Reagan rather admired it. I mean, again, he he, he, con- he compared Thatcher in speeches with Winston Churchill and wow. so on.
1: And, and so did you find that Margaret Thatcher was very... Winston Churchill and the Falklands, or
0: well, she and her supporters certainly saw it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever you think of the merits of fighting that war, uh, she was brave. She took a took a, a gamble, sending mm-hmm. um, battleships uh, all the way thousands of miles fr- from Britain to fight Argentina. Uh, so you can't um, ignore that. It was also certainly a, a, an aggressive act on the part mm-hmm. of. of uh, the Argentinians. So the British had a, had a point, but many people at the time thought it was pretty silly to fight a war over um, a place that was really of no interest and, and importance. Yeah. But it was a principle, and she saw it that way, and it, and it enormously revived her political fortunes, because she was not popular in the beginning of her um, government um, the economy was a mess there were strikes there were demonstrations there sometimes violent demonstrations when the mines were closed so that the miners lost their jobs and and so on and uh, coming out of the, the the falklands conflict as a war hero uh, suddenly uh, made her in, in, in immensely popular mm-hmm. so um, it paid off of course, I know that, she wasn't Churchill in the sense that you can compare uh, fighting uh, the uh, Argentinians over the Falklands to fighting Hitler. But um... uh, the,
1: the interesting thing for me, and I think the thing that uh, attunes people to hit Churchill in history, is it's it's the it's the great it's probably one of the greatest comeback uh, you know stories next to next to the George Foreman rope a dope of Muhammad Ali only in the context of a country where, where, I mean, there were so many reasons why England should have fell. And his, his whole thing of, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, you know, and, and uh, I remember hearing that as a child and then, and then learning the history of it. And I was just like, that guy, that guy's astounding. And I think there's another quote from him where he's like, you know, they'll take England, but they'll, i 'll be dead when they do because they 'll have to kill me for it
0: um, well he was, he had a tremendous gift for language and a yeah. great orator yeah and so he he knew how to um, to raise the morale and keep people from um, becoming defeatist and 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 fatalistic about it and so on. He knew they they had no choice but to fight on, but it 's also a little bit of a myth um which still gets promoted in Hollywood movies like Dunkirk and so on a few years ago, that Britain was completely alone as it sort of uh, defied the might of Hitler's Germany. They weren't completely alone. First of all, they had some help from the U S already. They also had their empire, which uh, enormous numbers of soldiers and airmen and so on from India and Australia and New Zealand and so on. They all fought on uh, the, the allied side. Um, they had other Europeans. They had Poles. They had Dutch. They had the, the Free French. I mean, not that they represented a huge force, but uh, it's not true that Britain was completely alone. But that is the, the cherished myth, which mm-hmm. again made a comeback in the campaign for Brexit. Mm-hmm. Those who argued for Brexit very much used the imagery of Dunkirk in 1940. Oh, well. We stood alone then, and and uh, defeated the, uh, Hitler's Germany. We can do it again, and then there are sort of images of Spitfires and so on. Um, <laughs> but um, which is is really not an entirely accurate uh, view of what it was actually like.
1: Yeah, or what Britain is now. I mean, it's, it's interesting to do that correlation between, you know a modern world, something 70 years ago or 70 years. Well,
0: the, one of the problems with Brexit is that in the, in the propaganda, um, the, the European Union is so often depicted as though it's some kind of oppressive empire and that was oppressing uh, the poor Brits, whereas, in fact, uh, Britain was a major player in, in the EU and one yeah. of the powers. And, and, and through the EU, still had a lot of clout in the world. Um, much more than they will have as, as as a middling provincial country. And one of the people, and this is in the book, that, who saw that very clearly was, was Harold Macmillan, who was prime minister at, at, at the time of JFK. And they were a, a couple that got on very well. They liked each other. And Harold Macmillan, who had also been a very senior figure uh, during World War II um, and... Well, was a British nationalist and um, was skeptical about Britain joining Europe at first and so on. But he said famously in an interview program with, uh, with um, uh, what's his name, Buckley? Uh,
1: William Buckley, Jr.
0: William Buckley, Jr. Um, he said, look, uh, Britain has only really been a world power for about two centuries. And the only way it can continue to be a, a major power is inside Europe. And he said in the same program, which was rather interesting, um, Buckley, this was at the time that Britain was, uh, that African, British colonies in Africa were gaining independence. And Buckley probably didn't like that and assumed (laughs) that Macmillan didn't like it either and said to Macmillan, well, do you really think these people are ready to rule themselves? And Macmillan said, absolutely not. And then Buckley said, so why are they granted independence? And Macmillan said, I'll tell you why. uh, If we don't give them independence, the best and the brightest will spend their time in prison instead of running countries and learning by running those countries how to do it. Otherwise, they'll never be ready. The longer we postpone it, the worse it will be. Mm -hmm. Buckley looked sufficiently perplexed i think by this answer but it was a very good answer and it was under Macmillan, a, a conservative that a lot of the um, empire, the colonies in africa did become independent
1: i think a lot of presidents they they and you probably found this in your book they 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 love the imagery of 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 churchill uh, i think one of the famous photos that that a lot of times they'll cite is I think it's a photo of Churchill, FDR, and Stalin sitting on a bench, isn't it?
0: Well, there is, there are many photos of where mm-hmm. of where they met during these great su- summits in Tehran mm-hmm. and Tehran uh, and and other and, and other other places.
1: Yeah, um,
0: the image, yes, but the. Um, There are various things that explain that. One is that uh, Churchill was always more popular in the United States than Britain was. Britain as a country was rarely very popular with the Americans because, after all, the United States fought a war of independence against Britain. Um, The the British were often seen as sort of snobs and hoity-toity and all that. So Britain was not so popular, but Churchill was very popular, always. And I think it's because he played into, and when you asked me earlier, how does the book start? I mean, I do go back further in time than 1941. There, there was a tradition, um, both in Britain and America, um, which is a little bit, goes into the sort of idea of American destiny and all that, which is a very Protestant notion that the the English-speaking peoples were uniquely uh, freedom-loving and liberal and that it was a sort of national mission, both of the United States and Britain, you know, the the city on the hill and all that, to uh, spread freedom and democracy in the rest of the world. And Churchill often used that kind of rhetoric. So, but it's Mm -hmm. older, it goes back to the 19th century in both countries. Mm -hmm. And I think Churchill became the kind of heroic face of that kind of ideal. Mm -hmm. So, Presidents, who often their, their, their clout in domestic affairs is limited, but they can do more in foreign affairs. Presidents like that image of being the ones, the great leaders who would spread freedom and democracy in the world. Whether it was, that's the, that, that was the rhetoric, whether that was really what they were doing, that's another, another issue. But that's where Churchill came in um, and, and was, was a very useful model.
1: And he's a fun figure to watch. He's kind of a giant, podgy guy with a. He he had a beautiful smile, and he'd have a big old stogie, and and uh, his top hat, and and I I, watching old videos of him, stuff. It was interesting to watch his his uh, his uh, the way about him, and I imagine he made a great character that Americans would would like because of the bombastic nature and the way he spoke and stuff and inspiring and things like that nature. That's something we usually ascribe to. We like people that talk big, which is unfortunately why Trump is
0: president. Well, he was a great showman, as, as uh, leaders often, political, good political leaders often are, not always. I mean, there are presidents who are dreadful showmen, like I mean, Richard Nixon was never very good at that kind of thing. Um, but FDR was quite good, but Churchill was had a, a great sense of theater, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's needed in in order to mobilize people.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, any last things we should know before we part about you and your book?
0: Uh, well, I think we've covered a lot. Um, I, I, I'm very keen for people to realize that it's not just a history, that it's, the, the idea was very much to write a history that um uh, explains in many ways why we are are where we are now
1: yeah and i guess we'll just have to look forward to the next 100 years of presidents constantly claiming to be churchill
0: <laughs> oh th- at best
1: yeah I mean, I've got a nice fat face. I could probably play Churchill if you give me a top hat and a stogie. I'd probably have to shave, my, you know, all this off. But uh, I could be close to it because I got that fat face. But uh, <laughs> there you go, guys. Be sure to check it out: the Churchill Complex, the Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. Uh, Ian, give us your plugs where people can look you up on the interwebs.
0: Uh, well, there's there's dot edu where I teach. Uh, There's Facebook, which I think is Mm -hmm. ian.baruma. Instagram is ian.baruma. It's sort of it, I think.
1: There you go. Uh, Be sure to follow him. Check out the book. And he's got a lot of books. How many books in total do you have? Uh, I think it's about 14. 14. Holy crap. Okay, so fill up your Amazon cart and rock and roll. Uh, Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Thanks to Ian for being here. Uh, Be sure to watch the video versions. If you watch the audio or if you listen to the audio version on the podcast, uh, you can watch the video versions. You can see the book and our wonderful discussion with Ian. And also uh, go to uh, our newest syndication, uh, Amazon Music. And, of course, the best place to hear this is on iTunes if you want, Google Play, Pandora, Spotify, all those places. But, you know, uh, we'll give a shout-out to uh, Amazon Music music. They didn't let everybody on. Uh, And then also go to Goodreads. So uh, you can follow me there. We're posting a lot of our book reviews there and our book discussions. And we've got a group we're trying to get going over there. So check that out as well. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you
0: guys next time.